Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's review is of Christian Alvert's deep space horror film Pandorum, which is currently streaming on HBO Max. Pandorum follows two crew members who suddenly awake from hypersleep to find that their colony ship has become infested by strange creatures. And discuss this genre-blending sci-fi horror film is returning friend of the show, Bernie. How's it going, man? It's going great, man. I'm happy to be back to discuss this movie. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. Um, this is a movie I don't think I've seen since it came out, which was 2009. And it's one of the few times somebody has recommended we review a movie for the podcast. And I've completely blanked on what movie they're talking about. Like generally, even if I don't remember every single obviously plot detail and thing that happens in a movie, I have a pretty good frame of reference for at least like what happens somewhat in the movie. Whereas Pandorum going into it, I was a little anxious because I remembered absolutely nothing about this movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's uh, pretty fair for most people that watch this when it came out. It's one of those movies where you don't really watch it two or three times typically, right? It's a set it and forget it kind of a thing. Um, But you watch like Ben Foster's performance and Dennis Quaid's performance. And this is, this is kind of one of those uh, low flying movies that should, you know, get a little bit more credit than I think it deserves. Yeah, that was something that I think was really apparent from the opening moments of the movie. And it struck me as, okay, the production, the kind of production value aside, especially like the title sequence, like the graphics are very clearly like that is not where the money went or the budget went rather. But in terms of overall the movie, I was really pleased at how well certain elements of it have aged. And it Mm -hmm. definitely, to your point, it feels like a movie that is probably becoming more and more popular the farther we get from its release. Like people are starting to appreciate certain elements of it. But uh, what about Pandorum really stood out to you that you wanted to talk about it today? I mean, it's, I love the alien genre uh, and the franchise and obviously uh, you, uh, your kind of series about it helped kind of reawaken that portion of it for me. And um, that coupled with, um, Uh, like the Alien Covenant movies and things like that. I just, you know, I thought about something spacey and Mm. this was kind of the first thing that came up that, uh, you know, I think is the modern day kind of version of that, that, uh, you know, I think there's more of a story to be told than than the full picture that we've seen so far. Yeah, it struck me at how kind of unique and familiar it was all at the same time, right? I mean, It is very much about atmosphere, and I'm glad you mentioned Alien, because what was so great about those early movies in that series was the sense of atmosphere. And what helped that movie stand apart from other sci-fi movies is just how starkly different that atmosphere and kind of the gothic aesthetic of it was different from things that we'd seen like Star Trek, Star Wars, mostly some of the uh, classics. But in terms of Pandorum, that's the first thing that I notice is that In this age, I mean, it came out in 2009, we had a lot of kind of, again, returning to the traditional sci-fi movies of brightly lit. It's kind of fantastical in the sense of like a Star Wars or Star Trek, whereas Pandorum is a lot of muted color palettes. It's about these people that are, they don't know anything and the viewer essentially is in their shoes because they have amnesia from their hypersleep. And I mean, we don't know anything because we're getting dropped into this world with very little information. And so in that regard, 
it really grabbed me initially, even though I don't think, I think the movie's a little slow in the beginning. It definitely takes time to get, get going, but it does a really good job right from the opening of kind of just grabbing your attention and wanting, and I wanted to understand more and understand these characters and their history. Mm -hmm. I think to, to that point, when, you know, you start to, we start to get some of the puzzle pieces on Bauer's life played by Ben Foster. Um, he keeps having visions of his, what we assume is his wife. Um, and we later on figure out like, you know, that uh, not only is she not on the, the, uh, the flight that they're on, but she broke up with him and that's actually why he's on there. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the director does a really good job of giving the one impression of what the movie is going to be about. And then at the end of the movie, we're thrown through a loop and it's completely separate from what actually is the case. Um, and as we kind of go through, obviously everyone else will find out about that. But, um, you know, the, the other thing that I really love about this movie, um, I, I can't remember who it was that said this, but this is kind of like a merge between uh, Alien and Event Horizon. Mm. And I, I love both of those movies. So having that kind of, psychological madness effect of event horizon coupled with these like alien s creatures of um you know pandorum i think it just it really provides a, a lot of different avenues that the director kind of goes through yeah th that uh, event horizon was the film that i thought about immediately while i was watching this and it's one that i only it's funny i only kind of just got an appreciation for event horizon over the last two years or so again that was a movie that I came too late and then kind of just brushed off and moved on. And then in coming back to it, you start to kind of appreciate how different it is than a majority of other sci-fi movies. And I would say that Event Horizon and Pandorum are kind of like dark sci-fi in a way that they, it really focuses on kind of the grimy aesthetic of space and this idea that, again, it's not very polished. Everything is very industrial. It's dark. It's damp. It's filled with these monsters that, they don't just kill you. They rip you apart to shreds. They eat you. And some, in terms of Event Horizon, it sends you to hell. And we see lots of uh, colorful imagery in that uh, film. But mm -hmm. in terms of the blending of genre, that's a great point also. And what kind of helps forge Pandorum's identity in that it's a blend of horror. It's a blend of sci-fi, obviously. But also there's that psychological like mind fuck to the whole movie. And that plays into the twist, which we'll get into. And... I'm curious if audiences in 2009 didn't, they weren't as receptive to this movie because of the kind of psychological aspect that you and I like, but then again, you and I are fans of a wider genre. Like obviously I love horror, but at the same time, I love sci-fi. I love psychological thrillers. I love action movies, all these different things. So for me, at least when I see multiple genres blended like this, it just makes what we're watching stronger if, I mean, if they're able to pull it off and in this, I think they definitely did. Right. I mean, I, I think uh, Night of the Living Dead is kind of a similar type of, uh, in the similar type of space in that it wasn't appreciated when it came out, um, right? And only as kind of time went on, did we understand or did audiences really kind of come to appreciate the concept of it? Now, obviously, Pandorum is a lot less, uh, you know, valuable culturally, I guess you could say, than Night of the Dead was. But it just in the sense of, again, appreciation, uh, you know, I think fans, in for the most part, 2009, um, 
I don't know. I, I think there was just a lot more quality of movies uh, than there was it, like now. Obviously, we're in COVID, so uh, that's going down significantly anyways. But I just think that when you're in a time where there's a lot of really kind of good cult classics coming out, sometimes, uh, you know, other one of those cult classics get pushed to the side until later on. And, and that's how you get this kind of a gem. Yeah, I think also marketing has a big part of it. I don't know about you, but I don't remember a lot of movie trailers fondly from the early 2000s or getting into 2010 area, like when this movie came out. So I think marketing wise, it probably led people to believe that it was more of a traditional sci-fi movie than the kind of psychological aspects that it gets into. And I mean, I agree with everything you said in terms of just audiences came late to it and in kind of looking at the genre, I mean, I don't know about you, but every couple of years, I view genres as being very stagnant. So I start to kind of retrace my steps backwards in time in a genre and stumble upon this movie or even um, like Event Horizon, which I, I mean, I hadn't seen it in probably a decade since I saw it last year or the year before that. And mm -hmm. so just getting a chance to revisit these things and gaining a whole new appreciation for them really speaks to that. But I want to go back to kind of just the atmosphere in terms of this movie. Did the atmosphere work for you? Did you dig kind of the aesthetic of the movie? Because for me, I don't think it looks like a lot of traditional sci-fi movies, just in the overall kind of presentation of it. It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you hit the point that it's, it's more of a darker movie. Um, and I just, you know, when uh, Bauer is running through... Um, kind of the main hull, I guess, of it, uh, after he, he breaks away from Peyton to try and open the door. Um, you know, you, you hear a lot of things going on, right? A lot of background stuff, uh, especially when the mongrels or whatever we call them kind of start chasing those guys around, but you don't see a lot. Um, so I think it just kind of evokes more of anxiety from watching it because you really don't know what's around the corner. And since we're brand new to this whole thing, I mean, we don't know the outlay of the ship by any means. So it feels like every kind of turn that, you know, Bauer makes in this kind of case um, and later on kind of when the other characters arrive we're just as new to like what is going on. So when they're turning a corner, we're just as anxious as they are because we have no idea what's behind it, essentially. Yeah, my, my thing that I love so much about this movie is that it doesn't look like a ship that anybody could actually live in. Yeah. In a lot of ways, like it feels very industrial just in the layout and it lacks, again, it lacks that polish that is so commonly found in uh, sci-fi movies and space movies. This idea that like, People have been in space for so long that it's so refined is always something that on the surface, it's it's great for like Star Wars and Star Trek because those movies are more about event adventure and whatnot. But in films like Pandorum or Invent Horizon, they've been in space so long, they've mastered it, and yet they're over space travel. There's nothing fantastic about space travel. They're over it. They want to, companies that make these ships want to save as much money as possible and whatnot. So it's kind of very bare bones and mm -hmm. in presenting something that is very, seems very like inhospitable. Mm -hmm. It kind of just complements the hor the horrific shit that's going to happen later on in the movie. I don't know. It really, it, I think it complements the types of stories that these dark sci-fi movies want to tell mm -hmm. in a way that further gives them kind of the authenticity that a story like that would need, I think. 
Right. Well, so to your point about the story, um, like we said, it, the director throws us through a loop on what is actually going on. Mm-hmm. What was your idea of what Pandorum was in the first 20 minutes versus, or yeah, let's just start that. Like, what was your kind of impression of where that movie was kind of heading in that first, you know, original couple sequences? So I forgot completely about the twist and I forgot kind of how the movie does incorporate a lot of psychological elements to it. So I was pleasantly surprised to find that the film doesn't kind of just play its narrative straight in the terms of we have to get out of this because the film starts with Dennis Quaid and Ben Foster, like you said, waking up in cryosleep, they're all alone and they have to escape that room. And we get that really tight claustrophobic shot of Ben Foster climbing through the vents and there's like all of these tubes that are basically crushing him in a lot of ways. And then he falls on his face through the pipes and the vents and everything. And I was glad that that builds to something because that sequence I think is pretty drawn out. Like the first 30 minutes of the movie is pretty drawn out and it's pretty simplistic. And so I can appreciate the movie overall that it builds to something more. And it's not kind of just this very straightforward, we have to get from room to room, this is why. Because had it not had that twist at the end and it hadn't kind of focused on people suffering from Pandorum, and for those that don't know, Pandorum is the uh, the symptoms basically of deep space travel and that people kind of get the shakes, their perception of events begins to become skewed, they become paranoid, they become violent, all these different things. And without Pandorum kind of like looming over everybody and the other kind of uh, side effects that we'll get into later and the realizations about their situation, I probably would be a lot harsher on this movie. Mm -hmm. What about you? No, I I fully agree with that. That first, I mean, you know, when Bauer drops down into that uh, kind of shaft and he's basically, you know, he's face down Mm-hmm. Uh, and he can't really move that well. And then he sees a body of another one of his, you know, fellow. I, for, I forget what they're called. Um, uh, the the folks that kind of steered the ship uh, every two years, the, the random teams. Flight deck. They're like yeah. flight deck yeah. operators. Yeah, something like that. So, I mean, it was from a different flight team or flight deck. I He saw, I think it was like a four on there. Mm-hmm. Um but kind of seeing that, that was within 20 minutes, I think, of the movie starting. So like yeah. you said, very drawn out. It was kind of stagnant. Again, it, uh, you know, when I was watching that, I thought this was going to be more along the lines of, you know, aliens have somehow kind of got aboard mm-hmm. and they have to work together to figure this out to, you know, get create some kind of good scenario where everyone survives this, right? Um, but as we kind of see, you know, other characters popping in, whether it's Nadia or, you know, for, I can't believe it took us this long to mention this. Norman Reedus is somehow in <laughs> Yeah, Norm. He gets an award for uh, shortest cameo ever. I mean, it's – I don't know if his is shorter than uh, James Franco's in Alien Covenant, but they're really <laughs> darn, darn close. That's a, that's a good That's a good point. 48 seconds or so. I, literally, you know, you just notice that that's Norman Reedus pre-Walking Dead, mm-hmm. and as soon as you realize that he gets – I forget what it was. He got hung up and he got eaten alive right by yeah. the – mongrels right Mm -hmm. um so like as you start seeing more of the characters popping in you realize that everyone has a backstory but it's uh, as a a 
two sir uh, obfuscated as Bowers's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think you start to develop some doubts in your own understanding of what's going on. Of Obviously we're not seeing the major picture yet. Right. Um, and it, again, that's where I start to kind of, you know, peek up a little bit uh, on my couch watching this because it, it started taking a lot of weird turns that I wasn't expecting. And again, I think that's where the, the intrigue of this movie comes into. Yeah, absolutely. And that bigger picture is one that I think has a good enough payoff, but also the ways in which they sort of slowly introduce us to how this ship operates and the purpose of it and all the kind of inner workings of it. I think that that like the kind of like breadcrumbs as they were is a little bloated. I wish we'd gotten to some of that a little faster, but at the same time, characters have like small moments of dialogue that really grab my attention. Like one of the characters that uh, Bauer meets Nadia, who's kind of like this ninja assassin survivor who is great at jumping around and she kicks him on, knocks him on his ass a couple of times throughout the film. Um, She says this line that I think she says it more than once where she says to Bauer, I think you, I think you are, you think that we have been asleep for longer than we actually have been. And they kind of cut away from that and move past that. But that's a line that stood with, that stuck with me in a way that kind of like reinvigorated my interest in the overall plot. Because like I said, the beginning was pretty get it gets a little stagnant. It's a little repetitive. He's okay. I get it. He's trying to get through the pipes and whatnot and all these things. But then that little kernel really kind of blossoms into a larger part of the narrative that bleeds into the twist and whatnot at the end. But little moments like that really kind of, it engages me in the story in a way that I wish there had been more of, but it does it just enough that it kind of holds my interest uh, throughout. But Mm. I think the biggest milestone in terms of the the narrative early on is when we meet the mongrels, basically, which are these mutants, for lack of a better word, they're mutants, they're these creatures that are covered in kind of uh, like scrap metal that they found from the ship. They look like scavengers and they're a fan of eating anyone that they've run into. (laughs) Yeah, it is. um, It's weird how like how not basic, I don't want to say, but, um, you know, animalistic they are in the sense that they've developed ways to trap their victims. It's not just, you know, that they're running around chasing folks. It's that they've developed certain kind of booby traps Mm -hmm. and kind of see that along the film of, you know, it's some sorts of wires that they basically entangle people in and then they can kill them or whatever. It's like a snare. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like almost like a a bear trap in a way or something, right? Um, But you see that and then you see the people that they're dealing with. And uh, obviously they're not, you know, uh, when Nadia and uh, Mon uh, kind of face off with each other, they're fighting each other, even though presumably they don't know each other. We don't have any kind of idea of what they're backstory is to that regard right Mm -hmm. but start to see there's some very minor similarities just in the way of everyone's out for themselves and again bauer being thrust into this where shepherd uh, played by again norman reedus 
runs off after saying like, oh, you're not here to save me. You're just in the same predicament as I am. You're basically just waking up. It's, it's coming clear that it's more every man for themselves. Mm-hmm. And again, that's another kind of, not alarm bell, but it was more of just an intrigue for me where it's like, okay, again, there's other kind of underlying factors that are going on that it, not everything is again, as it seems. Right. Um, and that's, I think kind of going into that is where Peyton, uh, ends up finding, I forget exactly how that situation happened, but he finds a guy named, uh, was it Lieutenant Gallo or, you know, yeah. Gallo in the sense, right. Um, he finds him in another sort of shaft. Yeah. He and finds him in a, like the ventilation shaft above him. That was just a weird scene, man. He's yeah. like half naked, just like he's in this kind of uh, covered by tubes, basically, and uh, and some kind of a slime. So presumably uh, those mong- mongrels or whatever, they were going to eat him or something, right? So I think that it was supposed to be that I got the impression that he had just woken up from cryosleep as well, because we get that whole opening sequence with Ben Foster when he wakes up and... That again, speaking to this movie's kind of cyberpunk deep space aesthetic, this again, in most sci-fi movies, like hypersleep is it's very polished, it's very clean. You get into a pod, you go to sleep, you wake up in the future, you throw up a little bit, but you're good to go. But in Pandorum, they wake up, they're alone, obviously. There's nobody there, so they're freaking out. Ben Foster rips his back out of this like feeding tube, and then he's covered in tubes and this false skin. And so then he's like, he's dripping with slime. He's got to rip off this false skin and he's ripping tubes out of himself. And it's, it's just fucking gnarly, man. It's such a gnarly scene. But to your point, yeah, it's supposed to be, I believe that character just came out of hypersleep. Okay. That makes sense then. Um, But you see Gallo start to kind of illuminate a little bit more about what exactly happened um, and in essence, Earth had blown up in the last communication or not blown up necessarily, but it, it disappeared. They, um, they allude to it was more like it was most likely like a nuclear war. OK, because that's why they sent out the Elysium was that the world by 21 whatever is overpopulated. There's like 26 billion people or something insane. So they mm-hmm. want to send the colony out into space to this planet, uh, Tannis, I believe. And yeah. then. Yeah, Gallo basically just relays, oh, we got a transmission from Earth that we're all that's left. Mm -hmm. Which, to be fair, I probably would have to have a couple of, you know, bottles of whiskey after finding out something like that if I was in space. But they they took it to a whole other level, uh, clearly. (laughs) Um, But, you know, again, when he starts explaining that, and then I think you, you contrast that with what's going on with Bauer and how they're basically escaping those mongoloids. Um, you know, again, it starts to give you more of a sense of, okay, this might be in some sort of alien, uh, not necessarily invasion, but it's, you know, they're attacking these people in some sort of way and they've lost the ship. And that's where I think, um, when they start talking about getting towards the reactor, mm-hmm. uh, I think you start to at least get a basis for, where this movie is going more so than you were in that previous 45, 48 minutes of dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before we move on from the creatures, what did you think of their design? So I, because I thought that, again, this is a film that is able to make certain things that on the surface seem familiar, just Mm -hmm. unique enough. And 
I think the creatures themselves are one of the most interesting plot points in the movie. Um, but what did you think about them? Do you remember the descent? Yes, that's <laughs> that's in my notes. There's one scene in particular that reminded me of that movie. They they remind me of the monsters in Descent, but in some sort of like a intergalactic warrior kind of a sense, right? Because yeah. um, they have like spikes coming out of them, and mm-hmm. like they have some sort of metallic gear that they're wearing as well. At least the the main kind of general ones. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it it looks it's it's scary in a sense, but when there's a little bit more lighting. Um, or where the guy without a nose, like the kind of evil, the, the more evil kind of mongoloid the leader. Yeah. The leader. Um, that was, I I don't know. I, I felt that felt more humorous to me than anything else. That didn't really scare me when I saw those. Yeah. So it's one of those classic situations where the more you can see the monster, the less scary it is. Mm -hmm. And they don't really use darkness to shroud the monsters that much early on. What they do that I think is it's a, it's a double-edged sword in that on one hand, did you notice that the way that the editing around the monsters is, is that when they're chasing after people, the, it speeds up basically. Say that one more time. They speed up the camera work. So that way it makes it look like the horde is kind of like flowing down a hallway. Almost. It almost doesn't even look like they're running. Like, the camp, the frames per second gets sped up, so it looks like they are almost a wave of monsters. But at that same time, like they cut so quickly that mm-hmm. it is very erratic, and you can never really get a sense of what anything looks like until the later half of the movie. Which, again, it's nice to not see everything up front because then it's obviously scarier. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, with it being so erratic and jumps around so much. It can be a little annoying at times. And I found that with some of the close combat fight scenes and that it just jumps from character to alien, character to alien to somebody getting thrown. And within 30 seconds, you've probably had like 25 cuts or something like that, that after a while, that just got to be a little much for me. You know, one of the other things that reminds me of, do you remember the movie Ghosts of Mars with Ice Cube and Mm -hmm. Hendridge or something like that, right? Um, That's the, a John Carpenter movie. Yeah. Uh, also underrated movie, but the the kind of the evil characters and that the zombies or whatever those things were, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of them was scarier than actually seeing them, right? right? So I think this is very similar in that uh, when you heard the screams of those mongoloids coming, mm-hmm. you would get more fear, I think, than seeing that I don't want to say it's cartoonish, but it it definitely doesn't. It's I think they could have brought more of a shock value in the way that they shot those rather than speeding it up, like you said, Mm -hmm. 25 frames per second or whatever it is um, faster to get that feeling. Um, But again, they were working on a limited budget. So I I guess, you know, there is a point to that, too. Um, What was the what was the craziest death scene for you? Because there were a couple that kind of stood out for me was there anything in particular that you know after you saw that you had to kind of pause it and walk out of the room for a second (laughs) i i didn't have to pause it but i can start with like what i think my favorite one of my funniest the funniest death in the movie was is when they're running through like the main uh humanoid mongoloid whatever you want to call them the hunting grounds and one of the cryopods opens up and the guy wakes up and just as he wakes up there's all these fucking aliens around him and a they eat them and rip them to shreds. Like that was absolutely hilarious. And 
That was actually Ben Foster's brother that played that role. Yeah, which I looked that up and I was like, why would they even go to the trouble of doing that? All he does is wake up and scream. Like, (laughs) I guess that's a, you know, IMDb category. Hey, a role's a role, right? Um, No, I was just saying that. I like how you took that in into a funny way. I watched that and I saw myself being like, that's totally <laughs> what happened to me. I would just be like waking up out of cryostasis or whatever. And then all of a sudden you wake up and there's, you know, seven mongoloid things trying to kill you. That was horrifying and funny at the same time. But the Norman Reedus one was yeah. so, I wasn't expecting it. Cause again, we don't, we don't have any idea of what these things are. I mean, for, mm-hmm. for all we know, they would have eaten him, but like not in the way that they did it again, catching him. Like he's, you know, an animal in that sense and kind of putting him up like a pig. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, that was a little uh, shocking to me in that, if, in that sense. But the, you know, to your point about the characters as well, the actual aesthetic of the, the mongoloids, there's a scene where the humans kill him, right? They kill one of them. Uh, I think it was Bauer and uh, Nadia and uh, Mon. Mm-hmm. And the mongoloids come there and eat that dead mongoloid, right? Yeah. They actually go attack him. Right. So there seemed to be, I don't know if it was as much the mongoloids trying to kill people as it was just try, them trying to feed on something. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I mean, that detail which if you're not paying attention and kind of look gloss over that, uh, it might, it would be lost on you, but this is the the kind of like story point that I found really interesting. And again, it kind of, it goes from taking something that again, seems very kind of just standard and traditional, just being like, Oh, these are the aliens. You have to avoid them, kill them or be killed kind of thing. But in this, we learn that they're not actually aliens. Like Bauer hypothesizes early on that, Oh, these are some kind of, mutants or parasites that have gotten onto the ship. But then Nadia basically informs us again. She says, I don't think you realize how long we've been asleep and that these people woke up. These mongoloids are actually crew members who woke up early and over the course of all of the decades or uh, centuries that they've been there, we learn they've mutated essentially. Mm -hmm. And that small little detail I really love because it kind of just enriches, again, something that on the surface is very generic, but that little story detail is something that I think, I don't know, it just gives, it gives it more originality and it gives it more purpose for why these creatures behave this way. Why are they smart enough to hunt in packs and to use snares and to use, to reclaim certain types of gear and whatnot that they find in the environment? Um, Just little narrative details like that, I really think help to just differentiate this from feeling like I don't know, for lack of a better term, just like a generic Saturday night sci-fi channel movie. Right. I mean, when uh, those three, uh, Bauer, Nadia, and Mon, they end up finding Leland and his little hideout. Mm -hmm. Um, He has photos. It's, you know, it's reminiscent of kind of like ancient cavemen drawings, right? Mm -hmm. And he has it basically exploring again how, you know, humans descended into this. And that's where I think the biggest kind of, or I, no, I don't know if it's the biggest, but the second biggest, more, top two, we'll put it that way. Right. Top two biggest shocks um, that Peyton is actually Gallo. Right. Uh, the, they're one in the same, right? Mm-hmm. And 
it kind of hit me a little bit later, but notice how Peyton, when he came out of uh, the cryostasis, he had a beard and mm. everyone else was clean shaven. So in theory, he had been out and about in that sense and then came back in with some sort of a beard because mm. I don't think anyone else had any kind of facial hair or anything like that growing while they were in there, right. at least in Shepard, um, Bauer, and, and the other person, that uh, his brother in that sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so when that happened, I mean, what was your kind of idea of where this was going at this point when we start to realize that Peyton is actually the antagonist of this movie? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the big kind of like hold on to your butts moment where it kind of just flips your understanding of everything on its head. Whereas for, I think I was suspicious of Gallo again. I didn't remember the plot twist, but again, Gallo is the one that seemingly suffers from amnesia the least. He's got the most background on what's happening. He reveals, obviously, that he killed his other two crew members and whatnot. And this idea that he just grows increasingly aggressive and he keeps talking about Pandorum and bringing up the symptoms. And as we've seen, Peyton and Bauer both have the symptoms of their handshaking and whatnot. And when the twist happens and I start thinking like, oh, who has signs of Pandorum? It's made me start to think again, like, does this mean that Peyton and Bauer maybe are the same person? Are they one and the same kind of thing where if they both have the same symptoms and everything like that. So again, it kind of just flips your understanding of everything on its head in a way that, again, I wish they had gotten to that faster because in retrospect, the beginning half of the film is pretty bloated in terms of just its pacing and kind of very one note and not giving us enough of those kind of interesting kernels of information in terms of the overall plot and what is happening in this world. But I think that the decision to have that twist is really imperative to, again, kind of just straying away from the generic genre path that you assumed it would be. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, since we're kind of towards the end of the movie now, what was more of a shock for you? The fact that the ship was underwater or the fact that uh, Gallo and Peyton were the same person? I think that it was underwater because I really was unsure where the ship was. I mean, when the, the initially they open up those bulkheads or whatever, the shields that cover the cockpit and it's all black. Your first thought would, and uh, Nadia says, oh, where are the stars? Yeah. And so uh, Peyton makes some kind of offhand comment that's like, oh, we're, we're deep in space or something like that. I assume they were in a black hole. They were just yeah. in infinite space because we're, t- we're given an example by Gallo where he talks about how uh, a previous captain that had Pandorum ejected his crew's safety pods out into deep space and they just died out in deep space into uh, infinite blackness, basically. So I assumed that the plot was moving in that direction where somebody was going to attempt to kind of jettison all of the pods out. How about for you? Which one was more surprising? I, I agree with you. The The ending where they realize that they're underwater and there you see that illuminated manatee or whatever that was um, on that planet. Um, that moment where Peyton mentions, and you, you mentioned just a second ago, uh, that there are no stars out. That was more, I don't know, my gut kind of dropped when that happened. Cause again, then you're starting to think of, are they in hell? Like mm-hmm. have, has everything blown up? Is that why earth has gone too? like everything in the solar system is gone or something like that? I mean, um, so it just, it started giving you more questions than answers. And then when we start to, you know, figure out that, okay, we're underwater. And at one point 
Um, I think they look at uh, some sort of computer monitor or something like that. And it says that they've been traveling for like 800 some odd years. And the mission was supposed to take only like 100 years total. Right. So they down there for 700 some odd years. Mm. Then you start thinking, okay, well, this is some kind of, you know, human horrifying human evolution to get to that mongrel yeah. age um but also how the hell are they going to get out of this situation where they're at the bottom of a you know foreign planet's ocean in that sense yeah that was what i really appreciated again about that small kernel that nadia gives us early on where she says essentially i don't think you realize how long we've been asleep for and then you see obviously i think it was they'd been there they landed there 930 years ago or something like that. So again, that gives credence to this idea that you really don't understand how long you've been asleep and that these it, it makes more sense why they've mutated the way that they have and that the people just didn't. It's very funny, actually, just thinking that the scientists that developed the cryosleep uh, fluids and food and whatnot, they didn't anticipate like the side effects of that, which mm -hmm. I could definitely see like. Elon Musk and people want to talk about, oh, we're going to get to Mars like at the end of next year. No problem. Just kind of like the corners they're going to cut to try to reach that and not thinking long term potentially. Um, but one of the things about that final scene that I really like is that we see um, Bauer really start to suffer from Pandorum and that yeah. he starts seeing it almost. I think he describes it as like the walls are pulsating or they're breathing almost. So it, you look at the walls and they literally look like they're breathing. And then you see the panels start to shake and he starts to hear there's some mongoloids. And then he sees one come out of a panel, which obviously it couldn't come out of because it's just a computer panel. Mm -hmm. But I wish that they had included more moments like that mm -hmm. because it would have made me question things early on and more frequently. So that way, by the end of the movie, it would have just made it that much more shocking. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because realistically, there can only be one or two avenues that the film's narrative ends on. It's either they're still in space or they've landed on a planet already. And I think in guessing that, it would have been a lot more difficult and a lot more engaging had they kind of made us doubt the reliability of narrators more so than they did at just kind of like the back end of the film. Let me, let me ask you this, because that was a really good point that you just made. Do you think they could all be suffering from Pandorum to the extent that they see those, mo like those mongoloids that are chasing them, you know, that are humans that have, like you said, taken that, um, you know, fluid in that sense. And it's kind of developed them to the state. Could they just be humans just like normal, but they have that, uh, since it's Pandorum, the cannibalistic, you know, look that they have makes them look like uh, mongoloids to people that have Pandorum. Do you think that's possible? So that's what I thought originally at the end of the movie, because at one point Bauer even asks Nadia, do you see that? Because they see one of the mongoloids again. And at that moment, I thought she was going to be like, what are you talking about? And that they had just kind of imagined all of these things or they were just normal crew members that Bauer decided to kill basically. Mm -hmm. And had the movie had that extra dimension to it, I think I would have appreciated it even more than I do. And I appreciate it definitely more fondly than I did the first time I watched it. But I think that it, if it had one more twist like that, that made you question everything throughout the movie, right. I really do think that this movie would have been held in higher regards early on. And it wouldn't have taken almost 12 years for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, to that effect, I mean, so they, you know, the ending is they 
get into a pod Mm -hmm. and they shoot themselves out. And apparently one of the fail safes on the ship is to shoot out all the pods if there's some sort of catastrophic failure on the ship to, you know, preserve some sort of life in theory, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what it, do you think that they were they're able to colonize after that? There's what twelve hundred people or something like that that's on there. Or is this again going to be a situation potentially where it's like you know Alien Covenant where you're on a, a new planet and all of a sudden you're facing similar challenges to that? Right. I mean, I don't see how they're going to get any of their resources or supplies from that ship. There's no way that any of them can swim that far down and not pass out. So as soon as I saw that, like the the movie ends very optimistically in terms of like, it's got the nice music and it gives us a nice scenic shot of like, oh, there's waterfalls and there's lots of vegetation and all these things. But then at the same time, they uh, originally Nadia describes the Elysium ship as being Noah's Ark and right. that- she lost 30% of the life form samples, which are different kind of like cells and bugs and insects and all these things that was supposed to repopulate a planet to resemble earth. Well, shit, she just lost a hundred percent of them. So this yeah. idea that she's able to do any of the work that she was supposed to is basically like nil. I don't see that happening. Um, what did you think though? Did you like that they escape in the end and that it ends on kind of an optimistic note? I'm curious because uh, I felt very, I'm, I'm conflicted on it, but I want to hear what you thought of it first. I, I think it's nice in the sense of like, this is a typical kind of ending where there it's a girl and a guy and then all these other pods cop up, you know, pop up and mm-hmm. they save the day in that sense. And presumably again, they're, they're going to go on and repopulate, um, you know, this planet in that sense or populate it. Um, but to, to the idea of what this movie could have been uh, again, you know, if you have, if there is another twist where Bauer and Peyton were hallucinating those mongoloids and they were actually the ones that were killing people, mm-hmm. um, then I think you have more of a darker overtone. Like again, I'm, people are probably going to get annoyed to me hearing this or me saying this, but that alien covenant ending where, um there's um, a lot of parallels so there are it's yeah. a fair i the more that you say it, the more i'm realizing just how many parallels there are in terms of narrative structure but so but in terms of the ending of alien covenant is michael fassbender whistling mm-hmm. and he's closing you know the door behind him closes as he walks into this area where um I forget it's humans and uh some Col- sort of DNA. Colonists. Yeah, the colonists, yeah. Um, so presumably bad things are going to happen, but we don't actually know until the next movie, right, in theory. Um, if they had some sort of, uh, you know, a cliffhanger like that, I think it just would have served more to the unknown of what was going on. And I think people's people's imagination can sometimes make for the better ending than an actual, um, you know, kind of bow on top of it, so to speak. Yeah, so I understand why they ended the movie the way that they did. Apparently, originally, this movie was supposed to be the first chapter in a trilogy, but it performed so poorly. I think it was a $33 million budget, and it only recouped about 20 So it's viewed probably by the studio as a flop, even though I think it's a little better than that, but we've already had that conversation. But overall, I wish that because the ending is so upbeat and optimistic, it just doesn't match the rest of the movie for me. Because the rest right. of the, the majority of the film is very kind of 
downtrodden on everybody. It's very bleak. It's brutal and unforgiving as we see like with Norman Reedus or that guy that wakes up. It kind of is uncaring for the characters in the film and that, hey man, if you slip up, you're going to get your guts ripped out. And we even see that with Man who um, basically spends the whole movie protecting dumb white people that don't know how to fight kind of thing. And then he gets got still and he gets killed by that uh, little alien child who, for whatever reason, is played by the director's daughter. I read that. That was just very strange to me. It's kind of like a brute. It's a brutal role. So I'm just, just surprised to learn that. There, there's a lot of nepotism in this movie, but yeah. uh, you know, I, to that effect though, I will say that was a good death just because I wasn't expecting that in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was expecting some kind of crazy shit to happen, but um, I mean, you know, again, kudos to the director for, for, bringing up ways to to kind of startle you without you kind of seeing it mm-hmm. uh, but i mean was there anything else about this movie that kind of stood out to you uh the one scene that i really liked actually two scenes um there's the one where uh bauer falls into the trap when they're going through the, the main hunting grounds and they end up in basically it's a kill pit it's like a sl- it's filled with sludge and dirt but then they find all the remains of i don't know hundreds or thousands of colonists that have been killed by the mongoloids and when they kind of sink down into the water to hide from one of them that comes to check the pit that reminded me a lot of the descent where Mm -hmm. in that one point i forget the name of the protagonist in that film but she's in basically a a pool of blood and she kind of like slowly rises up out of the pool of blood with the pickaxe and she kills one of the mutants or whatever but then there's also a scene where they have to go reset the power generator And the only way that Ben Foster can get up to the generator itself is he finds essentially a nest of the mongoloids and he kind of, he, I think, I don't know if it's skin or if it's just like garbage that he finds, but he has to cover his body and basically it looks like a skin suit. And then he's basically just crawling over these sleeping mongoloids trying like, I just love that scene. Cause again, it's part sci-fi horror. And then also it's kind of just like this gross gritty survival scene that, just makes your skin crawl at the idea that if he bumps one of these things the wrong way, they're all going to wake up and then we're going to get one of those sped up scenes of them kind of just like devouring him. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that kind of also reminds me of now that you said that um, in the walking dead, ironically enough, where uh, Glenn and Rick uh, have to get out of Atlanta in that, mm-hmm. that area and they put the zombie guts on until the rain falls off. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, again, the movie has a lot of, I think, homages to other movies or other cinema in that sense. But, um, you know, again, to 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 kind of put a, a final stake in this, I think Pan- what makes Pandorum such a good movie is that it's more of a standalone. I don't think there's necessarily a genre that you can quantify it in, in the mm-hmm. sense, if you look at space genres, again, you get the Star Trek, Star Wars kind of stuff. Then you have Alien and Event Horizon. This is a little bit different than all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, you know, not necessarily will, will bring on or foster another type of a space horror genre, but it opens the door for someone to to be creative and, and do something else along those lines. Yeah, I mean that I I can't put it any better than that. It's just this idea that we're so oversaturated with films that we kind of assume, oh, this is what it means to be in this genre, or this is what it means. These are the different 
aesthetical choices you have to make if you want to compete in that genre. And I think it's important that we get films, I wish we got them a little more frequently, but getting films such as Event Horizon, Pandorum, that show that, hey, you can play in the same space field as all those other space movies and sci-fi movies, but we're going to like crank things up in terms of horror to like 11 or 12 and tell these really fucked up and dirty and grungy kind of stories that they operate within the same basic genre description. But in terms of like what you can expect, they're going to be absolutely nothing like what the, what is perceived as being the status quo kind of. But I mean, I really appreciate you suggesting Pandorum because this is, again, what I love about having guests on and everybody has different tastes. And you picking this movie gave me an excuse to revisit something that I I mean, just because I'm flipping through the channels, I might not normally be like, because I, I didn't remember anything about the movie. So if it, I see it pop up, I might just keep on going and keep on scrolling. So I appreciate you picking a movie that uh, I gained a lot more of an appreciation for since the, uh, in the 11, 12 years since it came out. No, of course. And again, you know, I appreciate you doing this, this podcast. And I think you illuminate a lot of, a lot of different kind of horror genres and uh, a lot of stuff that people don't get a chance to see. So uh, you know, keep crushing away. You're doing a great job, man. Well, thanks, man. It helps when I have guests that uh, are up for watching and talking about whatever. So it's a it's a two-way street. But again, I love having you on, man, and I look forward to having you on again in the future. Appreciate it, brother. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.